You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Okay, I know the law is not a favorite topic for most yoga teachers, but fortunately for us, there are compassionate lawyers like today's guest, Ashley Danasta, who are willing to break down what we need to know in terms that we can actually understand. Ashley is an attorney and co-founder at Creatives Learn Law, which is a Colorado law firm and nationwide educational resource for heart-centered entrepreneurs who want to feel empowered by the legal side of running a small business. She's also a yoga and meditation teacher, and she brings that mindful awareness and love for the healing arts to her law practice. Ashley asked me to share with you that her participation in this podcast is intended as educational content and should not be considered as legal advice for any specific individual. During our conversation, Ashley breaks down two important legal subjects in ways that are both relevant and also understandable for yoga teachers. First, we talk about written agreements, what they mean, when you need them, and why they're so important. Then Ashley demystifies music licensing and shares some different ways that yoga teachers might choose to incorporate music in their yoga classes while honoring the law. These are super important topics, and having a basic understanding of them can prevent some potentially major problems down the road. So let's jump right into this conversation, and I will see you on the other side. Ashley, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. I would love to hear a little bit about your background and how you came to be at this kind of unusual intersection of law and yoga and mindfulness. It is kind of odd, isn't it? Sometimes I envision myself like this bridge between head and heart. Um, I have always been a really keen student and I actually um, didn't really discover my body or begin to build a relationship with my body until it was by necessity in law school. I was the type of kid who I, I wore actual suspenders to keep my um, pants up and I had glasses and I was always, I was the type of student when I was a kid who got in trouble for reading in the back. You are like my twin. I literally would get in trouble for reading under my desk. That was me too. That was me too. They would be like, can you pay attention? And I just, I felt like I was learning the subject and I wanted a story on the side. <laughs> um, so I was a nerd and safe to say, and I followed the steps until I got to law school and I found myself reading beyond even what I had the capacity for. I was reading like 12 hours a day. It was so much time sitting. And I remember turning to my partner and saying, I need to move my blood around. Like that was the feeling was like, I'm just sitting here and, and it's all becoming, I felt this feeling of stagnancy. And so I went to the studio that was down the block from my house. It happened to be a power yoga studio. So my entrance into yoga was very, very like Gumby like I flailed around. I certainly moved my moved my blood. It helped. And then it was after law school that I went 
to Nepal and North India and discovered that there was something deeper, more um, enticing for me available in the practice. And I just continued to deepen from there started learning more about alignment and the theory and philosophy and really developed this more spiritual relationship with the practice. So up until this point, yoga was the way that I maintained my own well-being as a new lawyer. And then I started work as a lawyer and began to see the effects of stress and burnout culture and so much performativity in the profession and started to be curious about whether I could actually shift the focus and offer what I was learning to my colleagues. And at the time I was working at the Court of Appeals and I worked for an awesome judge who really saw the value of well-being um, and seeing people in their whole humanity, not just in their professional role. And so I started teaching mindfulness and yoga for the court. From there, I left the court I started a practice with my best friend from law school named Allie. We had the Sturm College of Law Handstand Club when we were in school. Um, And so it felt like a really full circle moment when she asked me to be her partner and um, to join her in now serving creative entrepreneurs and wellness-based businesses. So I really started out this bridge between head and heart, um, trying to meet my body And then when I did, I tried to introduce the physical practice to other lawyers. And now I get to bring that all the way around and offer law as a tool to support other fellow yoga teachers and wellness-based businesses. So what in your experience are the biggest gaps that yoga teachers have when it comes to understanding the law and what it really is and how it can help them? I think that it's overwhelming for a lot of folks when they first get into it. People um, get into teaching yoga and don't understand that they're running a business. This is something I really love about the services that you offer is that it's like you you get to benefit from some really practical tools. And especially when it comes to the law, because there's so much power and sort of inherently this fear that's embedded into the whole institution. I think people feel like I'll just never be able to figure that out. And so they don't learn the basics about how they can protect themselves from the risks that um, are that come along with teaching yoga, why a liability waiver can actually be a really empowering tool and not just a scary piece of paper that you throw at your students, how having an entity can actually make you feel really well supported and established in living and in earning a livelihood for yourself. And also some of the sort of nuts and bolts of things like licensing and partnership and how to, you know, run retreats and be in relationship with other people in a professional way and in a way that's mutually supportive and beneficial. The big gap is really just a lack of understanding that I think is fear-based and I can really understand from a personal experience what that's like, because it's not readily available. There are not a lot of lawyers who do what I do. And certainly we don't learn about the legal aspects in teacher training And even as just in the general world, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the law and why it's important and what it actually, the benefits of it, because obviously I think most bodies of knowledge like this have multiple angles to it. And I think a lot of us grow up with kind of seeing the dark side and not necessarily the ways that it can benefit us. Absolutely. Yep. That's right. 
So just to rewind a moment, because I'm realizing that not all my listeners might understand when you use the word entity, you're talking about their businesses creating an entity. Can you just explain to us what that means so that we're on the same page? Sure. So for a lot of um, entrepreneurs, we, we start this work as a labor of love. We love what we do, right? We start teaching yoga because probably we were a yoga student at one point who had a teacher who shaped our lives and impacted us in a positive way. And so it's a little bit counterintuitive to think of our business as separate from ourselves. But when I say entity, that's what I'm saying. Your business is separate from you as a person, and therefore you treat it with all of the respect that you treat a separate entity um, from you. You have a separate name. You enter contracts as a, as a member of your entity. You have a bank account that's li- li- linked to your business and not to you personally. And there are all sorts of benefits that come from that, both from a limit, limiting your liability standpoint and also I think from um, maintaining a sense of your humanity distinct from yourself as an entrepreneur, which it's really easy to merge that, I think, in my own experience. I agree. And I think that some yoga teachers and some people in general might feel a little initial resistance at the idea of separating themselves from their business, because obviously, like you were saying earlier, we get into this because we care, because we have so much love for it. But creating an entity is a way of creating boundaries and having some distinct definitions around that. I actually get to be myself as a person separate from myself as a business owner. And maybe we'll help us actually set that aside a little bit. And then the other piece is taking things personally. I find that one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest ways that all business owners, but then especially heart-centered, heart-based business owners, passion-based business owners go astray is by taking everything that happens inside their business too personally. And so by creating that entity and creating those boundaries, my thought and my experience is that I can learn more actually and make better decisions and ultimately have a more effective business, a business that supports me better when I'm not taking everything personally. I love that. I love that you use the word boundary and like being able to actually benefit from having a container for what you're doing that you can have it like sort of have this beginner's mind when you know what the bounds are of what you're working with and you can continue to grow inside that container rather than feeling like we have to have it all figured out or um, be perfect right when we start. Because as a new business owner, you're, you're, um, just like a new, being a new yoga student. There's so much to learn. There are so many rabbit holes to go down and we need good teachers. We need good tools and, and supports available to be able to, to do that, embark on that journey in a sustainable way. And your students definitely want you to be sustainable as much as hopefully you do. I think so too. Yeah. Sometimes yoga is described as an art and a science. And I think it's really helpful to think of our business that way as well, that there's an art to it and there's also a science to it. And what I find to be so beneficial in taking on the persona or the idea of being a scientist in my business is that when a scientist runs an experiment, ideally, and the goal is that they are not attached to the outcome being one way or another. They're saying, okay, I have a hypothesis. I have this idea of what I think is going to happen. And if I am proved wrong, I'm just as happy 
as if I'm proved right because I got information either way. Mm, Yeah, growth mindset, right? Immediately takes out the shame. I love that. And if we can approach our businesses that way, then I think we would stop ourselves a lot less because this is one of the things I see so often is I care so much. I want to make it so good. I want to make it perfect, really. That's the subtext. Therefore, I'm going to wait and until it's perfect. And then we stop ourselves from taking action. So this was not necessarily the topic that we were planning to talk about, but I just, I think it's it's, so relevant. Yeah. I think it's really relevant and important. And, And the goal was to talk about written agreements and contracts, because this is a place that yoga teachers are going to come into contact with the law in a, in a sense that they're really going to recognize, Oh, if somebody, if they're being asked to sign a contract, it's kind of clear, like this is a legal agreement. And then what do I do with that? A lot of people don't even read them really. Yeah, totally. And you're still bound by them. Even if you don't read them, that's a common misconception. I think all of us do that when we scroll to the bottom of a website and just click, yeah, sure. I read the terms of service. We're bound by those terms, regardless of whether we read them. And same thing with any contracts that we enter into as a business owner. Um, we really, we really need to read those in order to, to um, not enter into an agreement that we don't mean to. So, yeah, I see that, I see that these, the sort of heart-based work and the practicality of teaching is so closely aligned with the business of it, which is part of why, why I went into being a lawyer for yoga teachers, because I, I want to be that bridge. And when it comes to written agreements, I think something that a lot of teachers don't necessarily consider is that they are entering into agreements all of the time. And the question is whether they're clear and whether they're concrete. And so, um, something that I like to share is this sort of an agreement isn't this magical thing that is that occurs only if you have a lawyer on your team to write one, although that can be helpful. A legally binding agreement occurs when you offer something and somebody else accepts, and then there's an exchange of value of any kind, whether you give a free class or there's money that changes hands, any exchange of value. And so that can happen on a text message. It can happen in the hallway. You bind yourselves to things all the time. It happens every day when we enter into a cafe with an open sign and order something, and then our food is delivered, right? We are bound to pay for that, um, whether we sign something or not. And so I think if we take a step back and acknowledge that we're entering into agreements every day, that we're actually really, really good at this as as human beings. And rather than being the scary thing um, that we need somebody to interpret for us, a contract is an opportunity to clarify those agreements and make sure that both parties feel really, really good about what is what is going to happen from here. It's a relationship honoring tool. I think that makes a ton of sense and it sounds great, but where I think many people go astray or where some of the the fear comes up is the language used in legal agreements. A lot of times it is extremely, it's jargon. It's not language that we are familiar with. And then frequently it's excessive. Like there's way too much language. Like the the agreement is so long that based on the exchange of value, it doesn't feel like a good investment of our time where we're like, you know, it would take me about four hours to get through this agreement. And what I'm agreeing to is like a 20 minute something. 
Um, there's two things that come to mind. The first thing is that sometimes, you know, the part that I don't like as much is that even if it's just a 20 minute something that you're agreeing to, you might be opening yourself up to risk that makes it worth spending that, that two hours to read the 40 page agreement, depending on what's in there, because you might accidentally be falling into a booby trap if it's laid in a contract that's poorly written, not for your profession, but even more. Um, I think that we have this, this is something I want to apologize on behalf of all lawyers everywhere. We have this pattern, which is to use archaic language because it feels like we're more important that way. And it's, it's just not true that a contract needs to be written in Latin for it to be legally enforceable or important. And so if you're in the position as a teacher of having somebody custom draft a contract for you, or if you're writing your own agreement, what I want to say is clear is kind. And the more clear your contract is, and that might include concise, the more specific and precise and clear your contract is, the more enforceable and the more both you and whoever you're entering into an agreement with are going to feel really good about it. So it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't, there are certain words that are just sort of terms of art that you might, it might be helpful to have somebody come in and explain like indemnification. That's a, that's your client coming in to defend you against a third party claim or liquidated damages just means that we're not going to sue each other for more than the contract price. Um, and I think it can be helpful to have somebody who can explain those things in layman's terms, but in general, you don't need a bunch of hereafters and heretofores and whereases in your contract in order to make it binding and helpful for you as a business owner. Another thing I think people don't realize is that unless you're entering into a contract with like an enormous corporation that has like a huge, huge audience and no interest in negotiating with you as a person, if you are entering into a contract contract with a person that you can and should ask for changes to the contract if you're not comfortable with it as it is. I think sometimes we might be, I don't know if it's people pleasers or um, just feel powerless, like because we're not lawyers, we're not professionals that we think, oh, I, I don't have the power to, to ask you to change this. But if, you know, I've, I've, worked with service providers before that provided me with a contract that was extremely one-sided. And I was like, I'm not comfortable working with you under these terms. This contract has to protect both of us. Otherwise it doesn't make sense for me to sign it. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a two-way street. When you enter into an agreement, it's both parties should be getting something. That's that exchange of value. And there are two things that I see. One thing is sometimes we get a contract for, from somebody who either has a lawyer on their team or they download it off the internet. And then we feel like, well, this is just what it is. This is my only option available. And as you're saying, absolutely not. You have the ability to negotiate and enter into a different contract. You could even have an, your own contract and say, hey, actually, I, I'd like to use something that looks more like this. Would you be open to drafting something that can kind of come um, in the middle ground between our two proposed agreements? You can come to a middle ground with somebody who proposes contract terms to you and you can negotiate those things. And I think sometimes people get stuck feeling like they don't have the power to be able to negotiate or to come to a different agreement. 
the other thing is that an, a contract is intended to be a meeting of the minds. That's a really lofty ideal that we learn about in law school. It's, in other words, an agreement where both parties intend the same thing. And so if you're handed a document that you don't understand, then it's totally reasonable. It's actually your responsibility as somebody who's entering into a legally binding agreement to say, hey, what does this mean? And if the other person can't explain to you what it means, then maybe you both should not be signing it. And it's actually, uh, it's pointing to a hole in the foundation of the relationship that is an opportunity to, to fill in before you continue to take steps forward together so that you both really understand and feel good about what you're doing and why and what it means. One thing that is a common situation in yoga land is yoga teachers applying for a job from a studio and then being presented with a contract from the studio where the teacher might feel afraid that if they either refuse to sign the contract or ask for changes to the contract, that they're going to be perceived as a troublemaker and that it might jeopardize their position or, you know, their ability to get more classes or to they want to ha- leave a good first impression with a new employer. So how does that come into play when you have this power differential? Yeah, power is so woven into everything that we do in the law. It's real. That's the first thing that I would say is that that power differential is absolutely true. And it's a real concern. If And it's a question of where you are in your business. If you've just started marketing yourself to studios and you're wanting to really work with this one studio in particular, or you really want to have a certain number of classes with that studio, then that changes the power dynamic. And maybe it changes the degree to which you're willing to accept terms that you wouldn't otherwise, because you really want to work with that studio. And that's going to be a case by case individual um, balancing act as to how important it is to you. On the other hand, if you're trying to build something like a sovereign independent business for yourself and you see this relationship with the studio as just one piece of something larger that you're building, and I really want to empower yoga teachers to feel that way, like they're building something and can market themselves to lots of different studios. They're not just beholden to this individual one, then it's so beneficial to take it as a practice opportunity to assert a boundary or a request um, and to get better in this space of negotiating terms. And I think as a practical tip, the way to do that is to come, is to take a beginner's mind and to come from a perspective of curiosity. Hey, would you be willing to talk about this? Hey, I read your contract. Thanks so much for sending it. I was curious what this piece means. Would you be willing to explain it to me? And maybe you set yourself up in this space of open open curiosity to to build a relationship that's actually going to be more meaningful than if you just signed a contract without really reading it and agreed to do business with somebody that hadn't really considered what it meant to do business with you. I think it's also an opportunity to test the future relationship because Mm -hmm. if you are presented with a contract that you're either unclear about or uncomfortable with and you approach the studio owner, like you said, in an open way where you're just asking, hey, would you be open to changing this at all, renegotiating? And depending on the answer you get, you're probably going to get some hints about what your future relationship with that person is going to be like. 
Totally. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the agreement that you enter is just a way to memorialize the beginning of a relationship. And there's so much that's going to come from there. I love that. It's a window in to how they respond might be an indicator for how you'll be treated down the line. Yeah. So I want to move on to talking about music licensing, but before we leave the world of written agreements and contracts behind, is there anything else that you think is really important for yoga teachers to understand? Knowing that a contract is the bedrock of your relationship, then I think it's important for yoga teachers to understand that it is only going to help you to have clarity in through, through something in writing in all of your relationships that are relevant to your business. So that includes your students. It includes the yoga studio. It includes your best friend from yoga teacher training who you want to start a business with. And it even includes your relationship with your business entity, which we discussed is something separate from yourself. So having an operating agreement that's internal to your business can be really helpful for you to reflect on and clarify, how do I want to operate as a small business owner? And how am I going to maintain my limited liability status? So really think Thinking about it as a relationship building tool and inquiring where you could build more clarity into all of your professional relationships is something I want yoga teachers to have in mind. I know that a really vibrant, important topic for a lot of yoga teachers is music licensing. This is super confusing, sometimes counterintuitive. And now we have the whole like in-person versus online pre-recorded versus live dynamic So do you want to kind of lay it out for us? What do yoga teachers need to know about music licensing? Yes. The first thing I want to say is like, so feel you, I can really, really commiserate. And it's like the same thing with trying to bridge yoga and law. Sometimes it feels like a mismatch when you're planning a playlist for your class. It feels like this heart work, right? It's so feeling based. And then you start reading the terms of use for like in the licensing agreement for the song. And it just is not something I I understand that would be a natural desired next step (laughs) from that activity. And so just want to validate that this is confusing and difficult. A metaphor that I learned and that, and that maybe some of you who are listening and have been exposed to the law have heard before that I learned in law school for property rights, which is really what we're talking about when we're talking about music licensing, is that property rights are like a bundle of sticks. And so um, we'll just pause there. Why, are, why is music licensing What does it have to do with property rights? You think that just like you are creating something for your students to benefit from, and that's why they pay you to come to class, uh, somebody who writes a song, somebody who composes a song, produces a song, has created a work that they deserve to be paid for. And so just as like an initial entry into the topic of music licensing, I think it's helpful to frame the conversation as a way to compensate the people who have put a lot of time and effort and skill into creating this beautiful thing that makes our classes sometimes richer and deeper, depending on our style. And so if we orient in that way, like I want to make sure that I'm that I'm paying the people who made the thing, maybe that will be motivating for getting into the nitty gritty of licensing agreements, which is ultimately what you have to do because you're trying to find the sticks. And so if property rights are a bundle of sticks, you think about there are all of these different sticks that are associated. There's the right to own something, to hold it and possess it. There's the right to give it away. There's the right to sell it. A commercial use license is different from the stick that says, hey, you can use this in your home 
home for your own personal enjoyment. And so when you're thinking about what your rights are to the music that you're playing in your classes, you have to think, what sticks do I own? What sticks do I have the right to give away? And what do I need to, what sticks do I need if I want to do what I want to do? Um, and so, for example, I, like a lot of us use a streaming platform like Spotify or Pandora to play music. And those streaming platforms, depending on specifically what's written into the terms when you buy a subscription, they're typically written for personal use only, meaning that the streaming platform, which had some of the sticks that they got from the music creator to give away, they only gave away the stick that says, I can play this in my living room and dance while I'm making coffee, right? They did not give away the stick that says, I can play this in the background when I'm running my business, or even more, I can play this while I'm offering my services as an integral part of the services that I'm offering. What that looks like is a public performance. And so Typically what we run into, if we're playing music from Spotify on our personal account in our yoga classes and sequencing classes to match the playlist that we curated is that we're violating the terms of both the streaming platform because there's probably restrictions built into there, but we're also violating the property rights of the person who wrote that song and performed it and produced it. And so if we return again to the goal of compensating everybody for their creative work, what we need to do is ask, what do I want to use this for? Which stick do I need? And where do I go buy that? And so if you're wanting to just simply play music in the background of your yoga classes, the stick that you need is a public performance license. And there are um, performance rights organizations that will sell those licenses. There are some businesses that are that are looking at this specifically to selling music licenses for use in gyms and dance studios and yoga studios fall into that category. Um, there used to be an organization called Spotify for Business that I think is now called Soundtrack Your Brand. And there are lots of different other ones. Um, but ultimately, same, same as the considerations when it comes to a written agreement, it depends on what's written down, what the words say. And you're looking specifically at the licensing agreement and what do the words say about which stick you have and what you have the right to use. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree that I think most yoga teachers are on board with wanting musicians to be paid for their creative work. I think where it starts to feel really unfair and just not well thought through is knowing that the musicians actually get a very small amount of what somebody might be paying for a license. And at the same time that the cost of those commercial licenses are not realistic for a solopreneur yoga teacher, especially like a part-time one. So we get yoga teachers starting to go down the rabbit hole of this research and going, I need to pay $400 a year. And I don't know if that's it. It could be more, it could be less. It could be $4,000 a year um, for a music license, but I only teach one class a week and I only make $50 a class that would like take like 50% of my profits or whatever it is. Um, and it's not even going to the musician. Like 2% of it is going to the musician or 8% or however much it is. Again, I'm making, I don't know the numbers exactly, but I know that it doesn't feel good to be being asked to pay an amount that is 
like more than half of what you're making in a class <laughs> for music. Obviously you want music. And I know that the, the solution is that you're going to have to go outside of popular music. You're going to have to go outside of the big record labels that are making all this money and, and negotiate directly with musicians themselves. That's one way for sure. You can either negotiate directly with them to give you a license to play in their in your class, in which case I've, I have a lot of musician friends and I always recommend um, friends use contracts, right? Get a, get a contract that says I can use this song on, on and on. And especially if you're wanting to record classes and, and play them, perform them, quote unquote, online for a long time after. Um, or you can, if you're, if you're at all musically inclined yourself, you can make music for your own class. You can also bring in someone to play live. That's a nice um, way to support a local musician and also get that added touch of, of live performance in your classes. Um, some people obviously choose not to play music in their classes for lots of reasons, but avoiding this whole situation is one of them. Um, and then the other thing that I just wanted to say on the point of how frustrating it is and how it feels like it's just not even worth the time and the money to put in is that that is absolutely a valid consideration. And as a lawyer, I will always advise my clients to follow the law and I will tell them what the law requires and I will tell them why the law is the way that it is. And I won't be shy about pointing out when the law is inherently unjust because it was um, in some cases written based on the influence of big money. Not to say necessarily that that's what's happening here, but we know for sure that, that many laws are inherently unjust. I will, I will always lay all of that out on the table. And then if I'm working with someone one-on-one, -on -one, I'll say, and you get to choose. And you get to choose based on your unique situation. How risk averse are you? How much of a rule follower are you? How worried are you about somebody coming after you? And what is your financial situation like? Could you withstand the blow of a copyright infringement claim? Um, and that's just going to be different from person to person. But, you know, with the caveat that you sh everybody should follow the law because I'm a lawyer and that's absolutely what I will always advise you to do. A lot of people don't because they decide that it's not worth it to them in that specific instance to, and they're willing to run the risk. Um, and I just can't make that determination for you. That's something I'd like every business owner to feel empowered by the information that they need about what the really risks are, why they exist and what the penalties would be. And then, and then decide what works for them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. For me, I generally don't play music in my classes. If I did play music in my classes, if I was teaching more asana and I wanted to play music, I would definitely want to partner up with independent musicians so that I could actually support somebody who wants to be supported, support somebody who's excited to have me play their music in, in my class. And that whatever I'm paying, I know is actually going to support the musician and not the record labels because it just... It is one of those things that makes you feel, at least makes me feel kind of crazy when I think about it. Yeah, I really understand that. It's kind of icky. One of my favorite things, it, mostly when I've just forgotten um, to do a partnership or something like that. I often don't play music in my classes just because I want people to feel like they can really tune in. But even just saying, you know, we're going to use the breath as our as our soundtrack for practice, like let's make it feel really full in the room. And that's an extra way to encourage people to create a little bit of 
soft sound. And on the topic of soft sound, I would just say before we totally disregard the possibility of getting public performance rights for music is that there are some small companies that are rather than those big public rights organization, performing rights organization, the big, big companies, there are some really small ones that have some small kindling back to the stick metaphor, some little sticks that are for like instrumental music from a local musician or, or a smaller scale performer um, that's just specifically licensed for background music in a space like a yoga studio. And so it's worth doing a quick Google search that's like yoga specific um, commercial music licensing and seeing what's there. I think that there are some lower cost options um, that are like on a monthly basis that might be might be worthwhile depending on how many classes you're teaching and how committed you are to having, you know, ocean sounds in the background. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for that overview. That was definitely very clear and, and very helpful. Is there anything else that you before we wrap up that you really wish yoga teachers knew or understood about the law? I like to think of the law as like the skeleton of a, of a business, of any kind of business. But when we think about it with regard to yoga teachers, I really love thinking about it like the alignment principles that, that can be sort of the foundation and the base for a safe and really vibrant, lively yoga practice. And so what I'd just like to relay is that um, it is just like any other tool, something that can be used for good in the right hands. And um, you really, I'd like to encourage anybody listening not to let anybody scare them into learning about the little, the pieces of the law that connect to their yoga business. Um, Instead, think about it really as an opportunity to build something from the ground up that feels really rooted and supported and like it's going to sustain you in doing this work for the long haul. And I really hope that you do this work for the long haul because we really need your services in the world. We really need this healing um, that the practice makes available. And so um, anything that you can do to support yourself in offering that gift for as long as you can, as long as you want to, I think would be a service to the world. And if, if the law can help you do that, and I think it can, um, learning just a few principles, then take that approach. And if listeners want to find out more about you or learn about the work you do, where should they look? I operate Creatives Learn Law. It's a little law firm um, with my best friend, Allie, from law school. Instagram is where we love to play the most. You can follow us at Creatives Learn Law there and check out our website where we are constantly building out a product shop with lots of templates and courses even, and that's creativeslearn.com. Nice. And I know you have a free checklist also for setting up a legally aligned yoga business. So we will link to that in the show notes. Hopefully this will inspire some listeners to educate themselves a little bit more and take advantage of what kind of protection and clarity and boundaries the law can provide. I would love that. Thank you so much, my I appreciate it. I hope that if nothing else, you now have a better sense of how being informed about the law can benefit you as a business owner, a yoga teacher, and as a human being. The stuff about written agreements is especially powerful for me. I'm always amazed how when two people reflect on a previous conversation, that they can remember very different things. 
Putting agreements into writing is such a great way to stay on the same page when it comes to things that are important. And really, if you're making an agreement at all, then that's an indication that the topic is important to at least one of you. Ever since this conversation with Ashley and a previous episode I did with Corey Sterling, I've been more and more deliberate about putting agreements into writing, even with my family. It makes a huge difference to be able to go back and be really clear about what each person said they would or wouldn't do. I'm actually going to go so far as to link written agreements with self-care. Bear with me here. Written agreements are a powerful tool for reinforcing our boundaries, and boundaries are key for self-care. With written agreements, there is less need to wonder what the other person expects or second guess what you remember they said they would do. Of course, a written agreement is not a panacea, and sometimes we realize that we agreed to something we shouldn't have. In this case, though, having it written down still makes it easier to negotiate or renegotiate. Instead of first trying to recreate the original agreement, you just take the document as is and ask what changes need to be made to this document that we can both feel good about right now. So if this is inspiring to you, consider if any of the relationships in your life would benefit from written agreements. Do you have a business partner, a client, employee, or family member that you make agreements with regularly or occasionally and that there's sometimes miscommunication about what that agreement actually was about, what was actually agreed to. Jot down your ideas and decide which one you want to get started with so that you can make a draft, a first draft, as soon as possible. Remember that any agreement can still evolve over time. So for example, you might draft an agreement for your one-to-one clients. And then as different situations come up, you can either add or remove sections of the agreement. I really like having agreements to be as simple as possible. So I don't like adding a whole bunch of what ifs that have never actually taken place, but rather add situations that come up frequently. Now, of course, I'm not a lawyer. And so it seems to me like lawyers have a much bigger, place a much bigger value on those what-if scenarios, those really big deal but very rare situations, I personally prefer to keep my agreements a lot simpler, but that's just me. Over time, as you start to implement written agreements in both your personal and your professional relationships, I would absolutely love to hear from you. You can always email me at mado at teachingyoga.net. That's M-A-D-O at teachingyoga.net. And let me know how this goes for you. Let me know, especially if you have a sense of saving time, saving energy, and especially saving and protecting your emotional energy and your ability to set boundaries. In addition to self-care in the form of clear communication through written agreements, let's finish this episode with a quick check-in around your meditation and your movement practices. How have those been going for you? I'll check in too. I had family in town last week and it definitely disrupted my practices because there were teenagers sleeping in my office where I usually do my practices. But I was able to sneak some alone time in other areas of the house later in the day and I was pretty happy with the amount that I was able to practice. I'm still not back to my regular routine five days after they left though because I got really tired and exhausted from hosting. But you know what? It's completely okay with me because I'm committed to not getting attached 
to my practice looking a specific way. It's going to ebb and flow. It's going to change. And I'm so grateful to my work and my community, my podcast listeners for helping me to keep the evolution of this self-care practice front and center in my mind so that I'm always asking myself, what do I need now to show up fully in this world? How could I do a better job of caring for this forever body? Shout out to my client, Tara Niefer, for that phrase, by the way. Okay, that is all for this week, my friend. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.